be talking about an interesting subject this morning. It really kind of leads us to the topic of peace. And one of the big elements of peace is stillness. And before we start this morning, before I even start this, this message, I want for us to just try and experience together some stillness. I know that this is a busy season. I know that there's a lot going on in all of our lives. So what I want for you to do is to just, this may be a bit awkward, but I want for us as a, as a room to just sit still for just a few seconds. I'll pray for us and then we'll jump into the message. Maybe you want to pray in this time. Maybe you just want to sit quietly. This is not time for you to uh, update your Facebook status or anything like that. It's time for us to just stop and be still for a moment. God, we know that you speak in a still, small voice, and we just pray that this morning, again, that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you for this moment to just stop and be still. I pray that we'd practice your peace today. Thank you. Amen. Well, one of the great ironies of Christmas is that in this season, we celebrate the Prince of Peace... And yet at the same time, the furthest thing from our hearts in this busy, chaotic, crazy time of year is peace. I think that's ironic. One of the things that helps me lose peace quicker than anything else in my life, is, especially in this season, is my Christmas tree. So I have an aging Christmas tree. I have a... Uh, a Christmas tree that's been around the block a few times, if you know what I mean. It's a pre-lit Christmas tree, and don't judge me for that. My wife has allergies and can't deal with a real tree. So we have this pre-lit Christmas tree, and the interesting thing with this tree is that the last couple of years, I've pulled it out of the shed, so I haul, it's heavy, I haul it across the yard, bring it inside, and it's, you know, it's got its tears, so I put the layers together, and I connect up all the wires, so it's all connected up, and I plug it into the wall, and voila! Half the tree's not lit, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Frustrating. What ensues then is typically a couple of hours worth of frustration and uh, me getting mad at this tree and trying to uh, have a Christmas cheer all at the same time and not sin in front of my kids and all of that sort of fun stuff. So my tree is an interesting experience. And uh, what I've learned the last couple of years with this tree is kind of interesting. I don't know if you've ever messed with Christmas lights. Some of you guys, what's the big deal? Well, if one light goes out, a whole section goes out, and then you don't know which light went out, right? There's like this whole issue with it. Well, thankfully, I have this little tool that helps me with that. It makes this beeping noise. Problem is, the main problem is, the reason I'm telling you this story is because every year I forget how to fix my Christmas lights. And so I have to then get on YouTube and read the instruction manuals on my tool and all this stuff to try and figure out how to fix the tree. And it's frustrating because every year I have this amnesia as I forget how the lights on my tree works. And, and, And much in the same way, I believe we forget the essentials about Christmas. It's like every year as a culture, collectively we have amnesia as we forget the main truths about Christmas and focus on the wrong things. We get obsessed with our calendar, with our Christmas parties, with our presents, with our family food. And and those things aren't necessarily bad things. They're decorations, our lights, but they're not the main thing. 
So in our, in our series here at, as a church together, we're trying to address some of this. We're trying to talk back to the truths of Christmas and really ask the question, what is Christmas all about? And this conversation really, I think, boils down to one key question, and it's an important question for us to answer. I would say, actually, that it is the most important question that you can answer in your life. And some of you are like, whoa, Harley, calm down, that's like a big statement. No, I really do believe this is the most important question that any of you can answer in your life. And the question is this, who do you personally believe that little baby in the nativity scene is, and I'm not asking you to say Jesus, I'm, I, we, we know it's Jesus, baby Jesus, who do you believe that baby Jesus is? You see, this morning you have one of four, I think, reasonable views of who that baby in that nativity scene is. Four only. Outside of those, I can't think of any others. The first view that you may have of that baby in that manger is that it's a cute story and it's a nice little fabled story, but it's one that's been exaggerated and changed over the years and it's not really true. That the nativity really never happened, that Jesus never really existed, that it's a, a cute story that people do, use to kind of make themselves feel better at Christmas and at Easter time. And I challenge that thought this morning. If that's how you think of baby Jesus, you need to do some research. You need to do some reading because even if you look outside of resources and look to secular resources, what you'll find is that there was really a guy named Jesus who walked on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. That theory doesn't hold a lot of water. The second position that you may have is that you may believe that that sweet little baby in the manger grows up to be an absolutely crazy person, a man who claims that he is the Son of God, which Jesus did, by the way, several times. And so if you believe that that baby is grown, going to grow up to be a crazy person, it doesn't make much sense that you would be all cute about the nativity. That would be something to think of as really strange, that you would celebrate Christmas and the nativity and then turn around and believe that this, that this uh, Jesus was a crazy man who, who made claims about Jesus but really wasn't the Son of God, if that's what you believe. The third position that you may have is that you may believe that that baby in the manger grows up to be the greatest con man in all of history. That he turns out to be this guy who leads not just thousands of people, but millions of people and generations astray with the greatest hoax in all of history, that Christianity isn't real, that God isn't real. And again, if you believe that, 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 this whole, that, that Jesus was a liar, that he claimed he was the Son of God but wasn't, if that's what you believe... Again, you can't look at the nativity and think it's a cute little scene. The only way that you can rejoice in the nativity is to believe the fourth position and believe that that baby in that manger is the great rescuer, the great redeemer, the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the only other that you can hold. Now, some of you will be like, hold on, I, I think Jesus was just a good person. A good person doesn't make claims that they're the Son of God. So you're left with those views. C.S. Lewis calls this the great trilemma. Jesus is either a lunatic, a crazy man, he's a liar, a con man, or he is the Christ, he is the Lord. And those are the, the, the real views that you have. And so, again, here at Christmas time, let's think about this. Who do we believe that baby is in the manger scene? It's an important question to answer 
Because we as Christians believe that He is the great Redeemer, the great Restorer. And what that means is that when He arrived in history, that moment was extremely significant. Because when He came, He came and changed the course of history. He changed our lives. Here we are, 2016. He changed the course of history in that moment. When He came, He came and offered several things to us. Joy, peace, hope, and love. Those are the things that we're focusing on as a church in this series. We talked last week about joy. This week, we're going to talk about peace. So what is peace? It's an interesting word, right? Peace is, this is from a Bible dictionary, a state of wholeness and security, embracing both the physical and spiritual dimensions and relating not only to an individual, but also to entire communities. And relationships among persons. We want a simple definition is simply this. Peace is a state of wholeness. You see, peace is something that we all want. But we seem to struggle with having. Why do we lack peace? Maybe I should personalize that question. Why do you lack peace? Now, if I was to get down off the stage with a microphone, I'm not going to do this, but if I was going to come around the room and say, why do you lack peace? And interview you guys this morning, what would you say? Some of you would probably say things like, well, I, I don't, if you were honest, some of you would say, well, I don't have peace because my finances are a mess. I've got credit card debt, I've got house payments, I've got, uh, you know, uh, school loans, whatever it is. I don't have peace because of my finances. Some of you would say, I don't have peace because of my schedule. I'm just busy. I'm going all the time. I don't have, have time for anything, and, and my, my schedule's just crazy. Some of you say, I don't have peace because of my work situation. It's terrible. Let me tell you about it. I don't have peace because of my relationships. Maybe specifically, you'd say, I don't have peace because of my wife. Hopefully, you wouldn't say that into a microphone, or my husband, or my, my kids. We all have things that we would point to pretty quickly Maybe you would say, I don't have peace because of failure in my life. I don't know what it is that you would say this morning, but I want you to help me this morning by grabbing whatever that is, that thing, if I was to ask you that question of what is it that is making you lose your peace, and I want you to grab that and drag it off the table this morning. Because what I want you to see is that a deeper level, at a heart level, the reason that all of us lack peace and struggle with a lack of peace stems from the fall. That was the ultimate breaking of peace. When the fall happened was when peace was broken and eradicated from our life. The reason that you struggle with peace is not because of all those superficial surface level things. It's because of the fall. Now, some of you are like, okay, you lost me there. What are you, what are you talking about? The fall is the moment in history when sin entered the world. You see, God and humanity, the Creator and the created were in unity. They were in relationship. But we, in, in, in our stupidity as humans, chose to try and be equals with God or even to be superior to God. And in that moment of choosing that, to disobey, sin entered the world. And that was the ultimate fracturing of peace. I was trying to think of a way to kind of picture or visualize this for you guys this morning. And what kept coming back to my mind was, I want you to imagine a continent, a big body of land. 
And in that moment when sin came into the world, it was like the breaking, like a big earthquake shaking that land and breaking it into two pieces and, and water flooding in in between. They were separated. When the fall happened, that's what happened to our peace. It was broken apart. It was the most catastrophic event in known history as the peace between the Creator and the created was fractured. We have a picture of this painted in the Scriptures. There's many Scriptures that talk about what happened in that moment, but the one I want us to go to is actually our key Scripture for this series. We're going to go to Romans chapter 5. I'd invite you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 5, and I want you to see again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want you to see again the state that we were in before Christ came on the scene. So we're going to jump down. Our key verse for this series is verse 1 through 11, but we're going to start in verse 6 and then read 8 through 10. If you look on the screen, I've actually highlighted some particular words that are talking about our state pre-Christ. And I want you to focus in on those. Now, there is awesome beauty in the gospel, and we're going to hear that in this verse, but I want you to focus in at this point of time just on the state that we were in pre-Christ. Let's read this together. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. But God proves His own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, since we have been now been declared righteous by His blood, we will be saved through Him from wrath. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? Now, there's much hope in this verse, and we're going to get to the hope. But I want you to see the depravity. I want you to see the brokenness. As we're reading that text, I don't know if you saw those highlighted words, but I took some of those words describing us and mushed them into one sentence. Listen to this. This is the way that text describes it. What, we went from being God's special creation to being, these are the words from the text, ungodly sinners, helpless enemies of God, destined for wrath. Just picture that with me. Hear those words again. Ungodly sinners, helpless enemies of God, destined for wrath. That doesn't sound like peace. That doesn't sound like wholeness. It really is showing us that instead of being at peace with God, we as a, as a race of people have been at war. You see, peace is an interesting thing because it's both a state and a sense. Now stick with me here. I just want to kind of articulate what that means a little bit. Uh, peace, you can be in a state of peace or in the opposite sense, you can be in a state of war, right? So a nation or a community can be at war or it can be in a state of peace. But we also sense or feel peaceful, or the opposite, we feel anxious, chaotic, overwhelmed, or even fearful. I would say fear is really one of the opposite feelings of peace. And fear and all of these emotions that I just described are rampant amongst us as humans. I, I thought of many examples of this. Think about Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of the e Eden, right? Sin enters the world. Immediately, fear takes over. What do they do? They run. They hide from God. They're fearful of God. They're fearful of each other. They're trying to clothe themselves. They're fearful of being seen and exposed. When that peace was broken, fear was injected into our world and into our culture. And we see that in so many cases, so many examples. 
I could give you a whole bunch more examples, but the ones that came to mind as I was preparing for this morning were actually back around the nativity scene. The nativity scene is the way that we describe that time when Jesus was coming to earth. And you can read about those times in Luke chapter, in the first few chapters of Luke and in the first few chapters of Matthew. And if you look to those accounts, what you hear is this fear coming out. Let me give you a couple of examples. So John the Baptist, right? You guys know who John the Baptist is? He's this important guy who announces the arrival of Jesus. So when he was born, there was some like supernatural crazy things that happened around his birth too. You see, his dad was visited by an angel, and this angel comes in front of him, and he's terrified. What's the first thing out of the angel's mouth? The angel says to him, do not be afraid. See, fear is our default operating system. You go on further in the story. Mary is there. This angel comes before her, greets her, and and it says that she was deeply troubled in the text. So the angel's next response is what? Do not be afraid. You go on in the story. Uh, Joseph, is, he's trying to figure out what's going on. Mary's saying, hey, I'm pregnant. God's made me pregnant. And he's like, what? How do, how do I put that together? Like, there's a whole conversation right there. Um, so then he's trying to figure that out. He's trying to be honorable to her and even be separ- separated from her before they get married. They're, they're engaged. He's trying to figure that out. God allows him to go to sleep. And in that moment, it says the Lord comes to him and says what? Do not be afraid. Marry Mary. Again, that fear piece is coming out. You go on in the story. The angels, you know, the baby's born and the, the, this angel comes in front of some shepherds. First thing out of his mouth, do not be afraid. Fear is our default operating system because of the breaking of peace. And so I really want you guys to see this morning that we need peace and our only source of true peace is found in the Prince of Peace. That baby in that manger is the solution to your and my peace problem. It's not a self-help book. It's not a study. It's not a class. It's not a breathing technique. It's not eating better. It's not exercising more. Now, some of those things can be helpful, but ultimately you will not find peace unless you find the Prince of Peace. I want you to see that this morning. It's so important for us to see that. Now, why am I calling him the Prince of Peace? Well, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I know I just said Isaiah, not Isaiah. Let's move past that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Okay. It says that this is a famous verse that we use around Christmas time. It says there, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is a prophecy, guys, about Jesus. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus is even on the scene. Isn't that incredible? And and, I mean, this is exactly about Jesus. He's calling him the Prince of Peace. And you and I can experience the peace that he offers. That's the good news this morning. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5, where we were earlier. Romans 5, and I want to go to the first verse from that key passage for us. You see, this first verse talks about peace. It says here, Therefore, verse 1, since we have been declared righteous by faith, talking to Christians here, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, this is the gospel. 
This is good news. We can be reconciled. We can have peace with God through Jesus. For your notes, I wanted you to jot it down like this. The only way that you will experience true peace is in a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus. Sin separated and only Jesus reconciles. Reconciliation, that word is so beautiful. It means that God is right with us again. It means that the gap between God and us was closed. And it's a beautiful thing for us to experience His reconciliation. Now, before we all kind of pack up our Bibles and move on, I want to I take a moment to kind of head off on a tangent, an important tangent, because I want for us to realize this morning that the peace that God offers us through Jesus is different. It's different in that it may not be the peace that you or I are considering straight off the bat this morning. The reason I say that is when I look at a couple of key verses, it really reminds, reminds me of that. One of the first ones that I want you to see is John 14, 27. Now, this is an important moment in history. This is Jesus talking to his disciples right before he's going to be crucified. Okay, so this is an important conversation. He's talking with his disciples. This is his last conversation with his, his close followers before his death and his resurrection. And what he says to them in verse 27 is this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I, not, I do not give to you as the world gives. Your hearts must not be troubled or fearful. Now, the reason I read this for you is we can kind of get our heads around those first two statements. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We're like, okay, cool. But then he says, I do not give to you as the world gives. What does that mean? How is God's peace different from worldly peace? It's kind of hinting at something that I think is blown up in another text that I almost didn't include in my message because it, it really has a lot of tension in it. I'm going to read for us Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. And you see this, this verse is an interesting one in that it's going to kind of blow up a little bit some of the things that we've been talking about so far. It's Jesus speaking again, and he's speaking specifically in this moment to his disciples again, but it's earlier on. It's before he goes to the cross. It's, it's before any of that happens. It's actually when he's getting ready to send his disciples out to go and do some ministry. And what he says to them in Matthew chapter 10, 34, is really interesting. Read it with me. It says this, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this, I'm like, hold on. What's going on here? The Prince of Peace is saying, I didn't come to bring peace. And, and the guy who's just in John 14 later on was saying, peace I give to you. He's saying, I, I came to bring a sword. What, is, what does that mean? How do we hold all of this intention? Well, as I was wrestling with this, as I was studying this, as I was praying, I was thinking about different ways that I could articulate what I want to articulate in this moment. But I found a resource that really put this well. And so I'm just going to read to you from one of the commentaries I was studying. And this was what was said of Matthew 10, this verse that says, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. It says this, the idea is this, if Christ had not come, the earth would have gone on undisturbed in its sin and its guilt until the day of its doom. Basically saying we would have had no hope. We would have continued to be separated from God. Now Christ came to take away that sin and that guilt 
At once, war resulted, for in their perversion, men clung to their sin, fought Christ and the gospel, and thus produced two hostile camps. Christ foresaw this effect and willed it. Emphatically, he declared that he came to throw a sword on the earth. Better the war and the division, saving as many as possible, than to let all perish in their sin. You see, God doesn't force us to come to peace with Him, but He gives us an opportunity through Jesus. His peace, listen to this, this may help us in in wrestling with this, His peace is both different and dividing. What do I mean by that? Well, it's different from worldly peace because it's not superficial, it's not surface level, it's much deeper, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. It's, it's a very deep peace that God brings, but it's also dividing. You see, it divides humanity, the peace that is offered us in Christ. You either hear the gospel, you hear the message that Jesus came and died for your sins, and you either think, that is beautiful, that is not what I need, it's offensive. You have one of those two positions. Typically, you don't hear it and you're indifferent to it. You don't hear the message that Jesus died for you and you're like, oh. No, the response is typically one where you're like, yeah, I need that. That's beautiful news or that's offensive. I don't need that. I'm good enough. And so what I want you to see here is this text talks about how the gospel didn't bring peace. I want you to see how that played out in the early church. Go to the early church with me. What happened was these disciples that Jesus was talking to in these two texts that we read, right? He's talking to them. He goes to the cross. He dies for the sins of the world. They finally get it. They finally believe as he's raised to life again. They're like, you're God and we need you. And without you, we have nothing. And so they surrender to God. And in that moment when they surrender to God, they become the first Christians, the first believers. They are at what? Peace with God. But what happens as God leaves them and and His Holy Spirit begins to move and the church begins to explode, this message of peace goes out throughout Jerusalem, pretty much war breaks out in Jerusalem between those who believe and those who don't believe. It's dividing them, right? Because those who don't believe, they find it offensive that these guys are standing up and saying, hey, you don't have to fulfill the law anymore because Jesus did that for you. We have fulfillment of the law in Christ. And as they're standing up and saying that, they're getting offended by that. They're getting offended by the message of the gospel. And that's why I want you to see that this message of peace is dividing. So this peace is both different and dividing because it is deep. Jesus offers us peace at the deepest level. It's peace with the Creator, like we've already said. Picture with me that your life is like a tree. And the tree has a trunk, it has branches, it has leaves, it has fruit. And what I'm trying to articulate here is the fact that the peace that God gives us is not on any of the external features of that tree that you see. It's not on the trunk, it's not on the leaves, it's not on the fruit. The peace that is offered us through Jesus is not surface level, it's deep, it's at a root level. And what is really cool is that what happens when that peace is experienced at that root level, it then begins to produce peace out in the trunk and out in the branches, out in the fruit in the life of your life. You see, as you experience peace with your maker, 
you begin to experience peace in all the other areas of your life. I truly, truly believe that. The only way to have true peace is to first make peace with your maker, and then when you do that, out in the other areas of your life, you'll experience peace also. To put it another way, internal peace leads to external peace. And what that means is this, that circumstances don't impact us like they used to. Peace isn't always the changing of circumstances. It's in spite of the circumstances. Isaiah chapter 54, 10 says this, Though the mountains move and the hills shake, talking about the most dramatic things happening in your life. This is God speaking to His chosen people. My love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. Isn't that a beautiful promise? In the darkest valleys, in the hardest moments, in the darkest days of your life, if you are a Christian, if you are at peace, you can experience a peace in spite of your circumstances. It's amazing. It's hard for me to articulate this, but when you are a Christian, you experience a peace. The reason it's hard to articulate is because as a Christian, when you experience peace, you experience a peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4, one of my favorite verses, says that when we submit our prayer requests to God, when we put our our concerns and our worries and our anxieties before Him, that a peace that passes understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise, guys. And it's not just a Bible verse. It's not just cute. It's practical. It's real. It's living. I've experienced this personally, even in this last year. Now, some of you guys know that in the last year, uh, personally, we've walked through probably the darkest season in our lives, my wife and I. My sister passed away in May this year. And it was a really tough time for us as a family. But I'm standing up here today to claim to you that in that darkest moment of my life, one of the darkest valleys of my life, I experienced a peace that I cannot articulate. Again, it passes understanding. This this peace was there. Now, that doesn't mean that it was all glossy, it was all good, it was all easy. I'm not trying to say that. But man, without a peace with my maker, I would have been a mess, a complete mess, a wreck. And so I want you guys to hear this morning that this peace isn't just some airy-fairy, superficial, spiritual thing that I'm talking about in theory. This is a practical and real peace that can apply to your lives today. I've experienced it personally, and I want you guys to experience it. Let's not rush through Christmas without really reflecting on what does it mean that the Prince of Peace wants to be at peace with us in our hearts. Jesus brings peace. And without His arrival, without Him coming, we have no peace. That's why His arrival is so significant. Jesus brought peace in a very tangible and practical way 2,000 years ago when he, when he came, lived the perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again. In doing that, He created a bridge between those continents, between humanity and God. And my challenge for you and my challenge for me is that we would look to Him and experience His peace today. So that leads us to a very good question, which is this. What is stopping you from experiencing His peace today? 
Now, I know that there are lines in your fill-in-the-blank little listening guide, which some of you guys are using this morning. Don't fill those out yet. Just leave those for a while for me. I'll give you some direction on what we're going to do with those in a minute. But hear this question again. What is stopping you from experiencing His peace? If you're not a believer, I'm going I'm to assume that there's people in this room who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you're not a believer, the reason that you are not experiencing peace is because you don't know Jesus. You haven't come to know the bridge, the one who can connect you back with your maker, your Lord and Savior. And so I would put you today, it's your disbelief that is eradicating your peace. And so my challenge for you, if you're not a Christian this morning, is make that step. What better time of year to make peace with God than the time of year where we celebrate the arrival of the Prince of Peace? If anybody who you know who is a Christian, if you have somebody who brought you along to church, you're not a Christian, talk to them about this. Say, do you really know what he's talking about, this peace thing? Talk to them because they'll be able to express to you the joy and peace that comes with knowing your maker and making peace with your maker. Don't just move past today without making a decision to make peace with God. You will never experience true peace without first making peace with your maker. You may experience peace in small ways. You may have a nice moment on a vacation. You may have a nice moment with your family where you experience peace. Those are just glimpses of the glory and peace that is available to us when we have a right relationship with God. So make that a priority today. Now, if you are a believer, how you answer this question is a bit more squirrely. It's a little harder to answer. You see, if you're a Christian, that means that at some moment in your life, you have experienced the peace that I'm talking about. At some moment in your life, you have come to God and said, God, I need you. And there has been a moment of surrender, and it has been beautiful. And in that moment, there's been a connection between you and God, and you had peace that you cannot describe. You all know what I'm talking about if you're a Christian right now. And that was a beautiful moment in your life. But there are things that happen in our lives as Christians that eat away at our peace. How does that happen? Well, we live in sinful bodies, bodies that struggle with sickness, disease, depravity. We live in a world that struggles with sickness, disease, and depravity. And because of that, we all struggle. We all have things that we struggle with in this area of peace. They eradicate or squelch our ability to experience true peace. And I would put it to you today that typically the reason as Christians that we struggle with peace is because we are believing lies or half-truths, if that sounds better, about God. There are things that we struggle with believing are true about God. Some of you have done a a study with, with us here at church called the Gospel DNA. It talks about four truths about God that we struggle to believe. I want to run through them really quickly with you this morning because I may give you a good reference. Because again, when I ask this question, what is stopping you from experiencing peace today? Some of you are like, oh yeah, it's my busy schedule. No, scrape it off to the side. There is a deeper issue. Hear these, these lies that we may be believing about God and identify in your heart what it is that you're struggling with. The first one is this. We may be believing that God is not great. That's a lie. 
You're not experiencing peace because you don't see him as great and in control. And so because of that, you're trying to scramble for control yourself. You're trying to control and manipulate your situation so everything's running the way that you want it to. I'll be honest, this is the one I struggle with the most. Control is an illusion. Only God is in control. Only God is great. Only God is in control. And the beautiful message that I want you to hear this morning is that you can have peace when you realize that God is great and you don't have to be in control. The second lie is this, that we don't believe that God is good. We believe that God isn't good. Now, there could be some good reasons for you struggling with that. Maybe some hard circumstances, some difficult seasons, things that you've walked through, through in your life that you're like, I look at that and I struggle to see that God is good. I don't have peace because when I look at that, I, I can't have peace. Well, I want to encourage you this morning. See that God is good by looking to the cross. See that He loves you and that you can know that He knows that you, you know that He loves you because He died for you and for your sins. And even though your circumstances may be pulling you away from that, know today that God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction, for fulfillment. Thirdly, the lie you may be believing is that God isn't gracious. You don't have peace because you're striving to prove yourself. Maybe you're trying to prove yourself to yourself, to other people. Or you might be trying to prove yourself to God, and, and the reality is you don't need to do that. God alone is gracious. There's nothing that you can do to earn His approval and His favor. There's nothing that you've done that can eliminate you from His list of people that He can love. God loves you, and God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. Stop striving, stop trying, and know that God can bring you peace today. Fourthly, maybe you believe that God isn't glorious that He's not worthy of your worship and your adoration or even your fear and respect. You're more worried. You don't have peace because you're worried about what everybody around you thinks of you. And so you're all trying to impress. You have no peace because you're trying to impress everybody. The reality is you need to know that you only need to worry about what God thinks of you, that He alone is glorious. And so you don't have to fear other people. I want you to be honest with yourself this morning. I really do want you to take some time this morning to think about your answer to this question of what it is that stops from experiencing His peace today. And I don't want you to think about surface level things. Let's seek to experience His peace right now. There is a verse that I just love that speaks to this. It's Psalms 46, verse 10. It's one that you may know. It says this, Be still and know that I am God. There's some other translations of this verse. Apparently that be, be still phrase doesn't quite capture it. Some of the other translations say this, Stop fighting and know that I am God. Another one says, Stop striving and know that I am God. What a beautiful verse. It's an instruction and a promise. The instruction is, be still, stop it. Find peace, 
know that God is God, that he is great, good, gracious, and glorious. And so we're going to spend some time here in a moment processing through this question that I just asked you. It's going to be a little bit different to how we would normally respond. But I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you guys some direction with this. And my prayer is that we would be still and know that God is God. God, thank you just for this time this morning to open your word and to respond. God, I pray that you would take away from us in this very moment distractions that would pull us away from being honest with you and with ourselves. God, I pray that in this moment that people would experience peace across this room. God, I pray for for people who don't know you, who are not Christians yet. I pray that they would come to know you today and experience the peace that passes understanding. God, for Christians in this room, God, I pray against any lies that may have, have crept into their hearts about you, that they would address those things head on this morning and see that you are God, that you love them, that you're in control, that they don't have to prove themselves, God, and that they only have to worry about you and what you think of them. And they can know that they know today that you love them because of the cross. So God, just in this time as we reflect, as we respond, I pray that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves and with you. Thank you. Amen.